Welcome to Trust the Journey. I'm Jason Malinsky. And I'm Melanie Curtis. Our mission is to live, laugh, love, and learn together with you. We're here to create conscious connections to grow and contribute through our practice of openness, honesty, vulnerability, humility, and trust, trusting the entire journey. Absolutely. If you would like to get in contact with us, our handle is trustthejourney.today. That will find us on Instagram, on Facebook, and it will get you to our website where you can buy Trust the Journey merchandise. If you scroll down, you can find Amazon.com there. There's a, you can get swagged. We've got hoodies, we've got t-shirts, get some Trust the Journey merch. And if you would like to join our Trust the Journey family and go ahead and become a greater, more in-depth group, awesome people, you can join Patreon and any donation at all gets you into the family. And right now we're actually giving it away for free during this crisis period. So um, if you want to join us, you can just shoot us a message. If you want to donate, you can donate on Patreon. Either way, the Trust the Journey family is just a awesome group of folks who just support each other with positivity and love and non-judgment and everything that we want the world to be hashtag truth right there <laughs> love the family love you all family if you're listening to this one uh cool all right team so you know and family everybody who's listening just broadly thank you so much for being with us as always so okay in this episode we are going to go back to the interview style. So in this one, we're going to focus on Jay in his early years in skydiving. So we've talked, you know, randomly over the course of our doing of the podcast and shared stories here and there, but we had this thought of wanting to share more real stories from our experiences. And we sort of are going to be focusing on some different areas of our lives. And we wanted to start first with our early days in skydiving. So Jay is on the hot seat today. And uh, yeah, I'm excited about this one. I'm excited to ask you a bunch of questions and just hear more of what you really experienced in your young life as, as a young skydiver and young person. Yeah, I'm excited about the the whole series that we're doing here. It's nice to be going kind of back to our roots. And at the same time, you know, we, when we decided to do this, the whole point is to reflect and to be deeper and to really like dive into like our journey of what has got us to where we are today and what keeps motivating us and where does the where does the story start? Where does where's the middle? Tell us about how it carries on. Where does it look like today? And so the whole concept of reflections and going back and forth and having the reflections between Melanie's perspective and my perspective and having the male experience and the female experience. And we have some very similar and very different experiences. So it's a really nice opportunity for both of us to really kind of dive in, dive deep see where we're made of, where we come from. Absolutely. And I mean, we certainly also believe that in so doing, the inside those stories is where a lot of value for listeners is found too. So we uh, wanted to get a little bit more into the story. Since we talk a lot about concept on the show, we talk a lot about uh, ideas and, and insights, and those are great 
and we also wanted to share more of the story. So that's kind of where this idea was born. And yeah, let's let's go. So this is your early years of skydiving. I I feel like I can't n- like. I have to personally start this episode by asking about your first jump. And I know you've shared a little bit about it before, but I want to hear, like, take us there. Where were you? Like, tell us about your first skydive. Why did you go? And, and tell us about that very first day and do your best. I know it's probably a long story, but, uh, you know, to keep it, make it as short or as long as you like. But it were, I want to know about that first jump experience. Yeah, for sure. I mean, how many times have we each told these stories? I mean, for any of the skydivers who are listening, you're going to be able to immediately relate to your own experiences and sharing what it's like to talk about the why and how and what happened and and where and when, all the things, right? So for me, this started back in 1994. Uh, I was 21 years old, right? So I was a young man. If I was in America, I would have just hit the drinking age for some reference to what it's like to be 21 um that starts a lot younger in canada so i was at a point in my life where i was a blue collar worker i was in the elevator industry i had gotten a job i just fell into an industry it was a good job it was a good opportunity and for me um, I always love working with my hands. I always like being hands-on and learning things. And there's a ton. It's a very diverse, very complex because it's basically got a little bit of every kind of trade mixed into one altogether. So I've been working in the elevator industry since I was 16. And my life at that point when I was 21 was really, really challenging. I've been through a lot of different traumas. And a lot of challenges and I was living, I was making good money, but that was probably the only thing that was really good at the time. I'd lost a lot of um, people in my life. I had had my friends group kind of peeled away and I was pretty much just doing the grind. I was getting out of bed, going to work, coming home, drinking, staring at the TV, doing nothing, just getting stoned, just being like a miserable blue collar existence that had no meaning, no purpose, and had nothing of any goals or values, or I was just kind of stripped down to the bone. And my boss, his name was Rick Sokoloff. He just recently passed, actually just a few weeks ago. And he had a picture on the wall on the shelf there a little framed photograph that was taken from the strut of a Cessna so a fellow by the name of Steve Tembasso ran this business where he had a camera mounted on the strut of the airplane and he snapped people's first jumps and it was a static line operation so you'd see people you know just just stepping off the step of the door open and they'd have their protec helmet on and their red coveralls and their old school um wonder hog containers and yeah yeah and i had looked at that picture lots and lots of times and that picture um had never really called to me and i'd actually been invited to go make a jump a few years earlier when i was 18 one of my friends had come up the topic had come up and one of my friends phil he said hey let's go one of my friends does this we can go anytime blah 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 and i said hell no 
hell no, right? Like the three years earlier, I was feeling pretty good about life, you know? And I, there was no way that I wanted to put myself up on that kind of a scenario where I would risk my life, you know? But when I was 21, I was down in the dumps and I was looking for anything that might pick me up or or put me put me down, you know, proverbably as the, as an animal as you would with a, a sick animal or a tired animal that's been, that's at the end of its life. I, I was kind of feeling that like, yeah, fine, if this will take me out and I can stop being this miserable, that might that might be okay with me right now. Yeah, I was really in a, in, a, in a shit place in my life. I still had I mean, you know, like I still had things that I love to do, uh, but I really just had my guts ripped out enough times where I just didn't give a fuck anymore. You know, yeah. So you go to this place, and what's the place, and what what happens? Yeah. So we decide to make a uh, work jump day. So a f- bunch of us from where I worked at the elevator company got together, and one of my other friends from outside of work, and we went to Skydive Toronto, which was chosen because it has square parachutes not round parachutes that was the options at the time you could either jump rounds or squares and it's kind of toronto had square parachutes and we felt like they were more advanced so it'd be a better choice and it was about an hour north of the city in toronto and it was a little old farm that had been converted and had a grass strip built had the big big old red barn and the old farmhouse and a bunch of old utility trailers uh, you know, like construction trailers that were the offices and a bunch of airplanes. Cool. Like Fandango? Very much. <laughs> Very much. Yes. If you haven't seen the movie Fandango, feel free to go watch it, team. Sorry. Go on, Jay. Yeah. So I rolled up there on a, <coughs> excuse me, on a Friday night and we're doing a static line first jump course. So you spend a good five, six hours in a classroom and then you go to two or 3,000 feet and you make a static line jump. Or somewhere near the late afternoon, end of the day. So I went up on the Friday night with a friend of mine and, and brought up, rode up on my motorcycle and brought a tent and pitched a tent to stay there the night before and um, immediately walked over to the bonfire. A very typical kind of thing, you know. It's an inviting place. A bunch of people stand around a bonfire drinking some beer and wandered over and said hi and met a couple people and rolled a joint, popped a beer, Asked anybody if they wanted to smoke some with me, you know, and immediately made some friends. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And then, you know, the the first jump course and the the jump all just kind of blur by. It's the whole training scene. You know, everybody, most people have been through some kind of training for something you've never done before. And it all just kind of a blur. I had studied ahead. I had read a couple of books and I had the Skydiver's handbook. And so a lot of it was like, that was my style. I would learn something before I'm going to do it. And um, by the time we were going up for the jump, I really felt pretty good about it. I wasn't too... Um, I felt like I knew what I needed to know. Um, but I still had the total fear, you know, like never, especially sitting awkwardly in a little airplane like that. And... Yeah. Well, you know, when the door opens for the first time in an airplane in flight, there's a huge blast of wind. It gets way noisier. It gets way brighter inside, you know, because they have fairly small windows. 
Um, so there's a huge change in the atmosphere. I mean, the cool air from outside rushes in, you get the blast and all of a sudden the door's wide open and there's this immediately deeply ingrained fear in all of us that just goes and like tightens right down and pulls us away from the door. You know, you're like, uh, 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 no, 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 no. Love it. Yeah. And I, I was pretty programmed. Like I had decided what I was going to do. And once I make my mind up, I pretty much just do it. So even though there was a wash of fear, I was pretty happy to feel that fear because I really just wanted to feel something other than the pain that I'd been feeling for so long. So fear actually was a nice change of pace. Cool. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So when you climb out on the strut, you weren't afraid you were climbing out. Did you have to put your foot on the wheel? Did you climb out on the strut and then go? Or was the actual jump itself relatively uneventful for you? Well, we had a nice little step on the strut, which made it pretty easy. And I just went into kind of athlete robot mode and I was a monkey and confident and strong. So, I mean, I just reached out there and like, grabbed a hold of the strut, you know, did the, grab the door, grab the strut, put a foot out, uh, got out there and my count was ready, set, die. Oh my gosh. Because it was basically just giving into all giving, letting go of control, right? Like you don't do anything on a static line jump. You just fall off the plane and the parachute either opens right or it doesn't open right. And then, you know, you're going to deal with it from there. But that's not the, I mean, that's not the experience that I had. The the exit was ready, set, die. And the parachute opened and it was like my whole life just started on that moment. You know, the instant the parachute was open, it it was as though the path that I was on at that point had taken a 90 degree turn. And just change directions. And I don't know. I don't say that it's like a 180. And turned the other way from the direction it was going. For me it feels like a 90 degree left turn. Like things just changed specifically from. The life that I was leading. Was no longer the life that I was leading. Like I had chosen a new path. In that instant. And. You know. I follow the commands and the training and do the things you're supposed to do pull the toggles out listen for the radio look for the drop zone you can't find the drop zone you don't know what you're looking at you know i don't know it's so so hard to comprehend what those experiences are going to be like the first time but when my feet were back on the ground and it was all kind of recomposing itself you know reality was stitching itself back together again because it's kind of like reality gets torn apart the seams and then when you're back on the ground reality slowly stitches back up like velcro connecting back together or a zipper zipping back up and you're like oh yeah i know this world this is the one i'm familiar with and prior to that you're in this world that's like a dream like you flying you know yeah yeah I do know yeah. <laughs> yeah. what I and listening to that story I'm like oh how thankful I am for skydiving oh my god yeah you know what I mean for be, I, I'm thinking of it relative to you going Jay's life took a 90 degree turn in that moment I could easily not know you I could easily we could easily not be here 
You know what I mean? Like I'm grateful for all of that because of that one moment. Like how beautiful. Oh, I just love that. I'm so grateful for that. I mean, there's no clearer defining direction change or shift of course, you know, that I can recall. I've had lots of other moments in my life that that very much define who I am. You know, we all have those moments that and those experiences that that really are the pillars of who we are. But that specifically of stepping out of the airplane was the most impactful experience in my entire life as far as a change of heading. Beautiful. Uh, Well, we could talk about that given we love the depth and we go there a lot. So let's put a pin in that and go on to more of you as a young person. So as we're prepping for this episode, one of the things that you wrote down that stuck out to me was the flying reptiles. So I'm like, what is that? And please tell us more about what that is and yeah, just what it meant to your young years. um, This is just a gratitude that I have right here as far as this this club, right? The, The... irony is that the drop zone where I started skydiving at the skydive Toronto incorporated STI was famous for its ownership uh the chows Joe Chow Claire Chow Jennifer Chow for their Joe in particular having his way about him the way his mannerisms the way that he run the business the way that he chooses to communicate and the business transactions that he does like the type of leadership that occurs there is a bit of a face palm at times right now it's one of these things where you're just like what is going on here with this okay this is your place you do it however you want you know and the flying reptiles was the skydiving club that existed on the drop zone. And it was a bit of an anarchy to the system of the drop zone itself. Oh, okay. Got where, it. So it was yeah. in resistance to the DZOs. Absolutely. Okay, okay. Absolutely. Like the flying reptiles were the band of brothers and sisters who all skydive at Skydive Toronto who were going to have the most fun and find their way through all the rules and do whatever they wanted to do and kind of not get caught. How did you get inducted into the Flying Reptiles? Well, I mean, it's such a small drop zone, you know. We had a few Cessnas, and if you start to jump there with any regularity – you know, it's the it's the locals, it's the regulars, it's the ones who are actually on site, you know, every weekend or at least one, a weekend a month or something, you know. And so at the time, I'm talking 1994, probably the Flying Reptiles, if I was to estimate, because, I mean, I left by 1997, but I would say the Reptiles kept going for a couple more years, but it was starting to fade out. Um so that core group, you know, it lasted for three, four, five years where it was really a strong element at the drop zone. It, it's that brotherhood and sisterhood that we have. I mean, we're all still friends now, 
You know, like we all still chat on Facebook once in a while or you give each other a text or a call or if you're in the neighborhood, you might cross paths and get lunch or something, you know, or see each other. Like yeah. You see each other when you make a trip to, to Toronto or you come down to Florida or like that. It's still there. You know, those, that's a fraternity, right? Or you know. The roots, we, you mentioned at the start, going back to our roots and... uh and there's a groundedness to that for sure, no doubt. So you see those people and you're like, I knew you when, we knew, cho- knew each other when, before all the rest of life and yada, yada, yada goes down or we do this or we do that. And there's a real comfort in those types of relationships. It makes sense. And it, it's cool to hear that even the small, a super small drop zone had a co- sort of collective that welcomed people in. And and it actually the club actually did stuff too. Like we bought a construction trailer and made a clubhouse, you know, and had a place, a communal place for people to hang out because it's Canada, it gets cold, you know. And we put bunk rooms in the clubhouse, and we had a stove, and you know, and we could have a mutual space, and we would collect all the empty bottles and return them all, and take all that and put them back. Like all empty bottles went to the funds for the club, no matter who had brought beer kind of thing and and there was just a lot of nice little initiatives making t-shirts making hats doing things that like bonded people together and gave each other a purpose to be a community outside of just the skydiving itself you know and i think we all we all look for that in life it's like it's not just a friends group it's a family you know I, yes, for sure. And obviously, as we go forward as people and whether in the sport or as just, you know, human beings, I, I'm next curious. I know you mentioned sort of it, again, being a small drop zone and not necessarily having mentors there that could mentor your skydiving growth. So one thing that I think, and we can, you can pick what you want to share, but I, one thing that I think most people don't know about you is that you used to do four-way formation skydiving. Sure. I mean, I feel like a lot of people probably don't know that. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe everybody's like, duh, Mel, you're out of the loop. And, you know, but I'm curious, I want to hear more about that sort of, okay, you're in skydiving, you feel welcome, you're doing the thing. And you now start to go, what can I do more of in the sport? And this is what I'm imagining you're experiencing. So tell us about that. Like, I don't really have anyone to direct me. How did you start to do the next level of, of sort of involvement in the sport that you went after? Well, I feel like at this point in the story, it's really valid to say the drop zone owner, Joe, at this time, I think... I would estimate that he had about three and a half thousand jumps at that time. And the next most experienced person on the drop zone would be 500 to 800 jumps. Like these are like the most experienced jumpers on the DZ. And so the guys with 500, 800 jumps, they're the lead instructors. They're the ones who you would look to as like, they're the top of the totem pole as far as mentorship for free, free fall skills, for canopy skills, for, you know, any just a quick interjection for non skydivers who are listening to this episode, that is very few jumps. Very few. 
very Thanks. few jumps, but uh, you know, I'm thinking a non-skydiver could be listening to this episode going, wow, 500 jumps. That's not a lot in the realm of skydiving experience. So anyway, go on. Yeah. So um, one thing to, that is, so that was somewhat of a negative thing because you know, you're in a small pond with small fish. And so there's a relative scale of like, how much am I going to learn and how quickly am I going to learn it? And, and you just don't know the size of the pond you're in when you're in the pond, right? Mm-hmm. And I was very fortunate that um, the drop zone itself had an active competition culture. So even though it was a very small drop zone, it was very proactive because of Joe's leadership, which is one of his positive traits, that he really pushed weekend accuracy competitions or formation skydiving competitions. Anytime there could be a competition, he'd be like, let's have a competition. And so we would have pickup four-way teams um, for these, you know, weekend competitions and people would do a couple weekends of training beforehand and, you know, figure out how to fly together a little bit and then have these, yeah, there's like one-off pickup teams, right? Um, and that was, I love competition. You know, I always found that the connection with the other people and the, having the challenge and clarifying the learning objective, like what's the goal? What am I trying to do here? How do I actually get better at it? It accelerates your entire learning process to take part in these competitions. So it had only taken me, uh, um, well, two things. At the time, you had a couple options. You could either do style and accuracy if you wanted to jump by yourself, or if you wanted to jump with other people, you could do four-way or you could do crew. Those were like the things you could do. Crew is flying your parachutes together, like linking your parachutes together for canopy formation or freefall formation. And freefall formation was pretty much limited to four-way because we just didn't have the ability to do eight-way or 10-way because we only had Cessnas. Right. right. My first formation load was a Cessna, two Cessnas. Me too, Me too. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> nice. We actually set a, a Canadian record of... Uh, a 12-way from three Cessnas, and then we did a 20-way from five Cessnas. Oh, yeah. my God. I love that. Yeah, it was great. Cool. So I would great. love to be on a load like that. <laughs> and we would do things like take all five Cessnas fully loaded and do a cross-country hop and pop with 20 people. Fly them all in formation. So fun to get. Yeah. Oh, my God. So, okay. So, so you I could s- only do four people. Because yeah. of Cessnas, yada, yada. But really, formation skydiving or crew, and you opted toward the free fall route. Yeah. So I had been very fortunate in my early days to be exposed to skydiving in the USA. In my first year of skydiving, I ended up making a trip to Florida. So I got the rural, backcountry, farmland Cessna experience. And then I also got exposed to the biggest drop zones in the world, operating at full capacity in my first year. So I got both sides. I did a a Florida winter, Christmas, New Year's, uh, Christmas boogie trip. Okay, gotcha. So you went for like a big, long road trip for uh, like a big month. And so that got you your eyes opening up to what was more. Tell us more about that too. Well, that was like, like completely blew my mind, right? Because I had never seen anything other than two planes in the air together my first year, two Cessnas, each carrying four or five people. 
And the first thing that I saw in Florida was a 232-way record at Florida Skydiving Center when Roger Nelson owned it. He was the first person I got introduced to. Uh, Dave Cicerelli was I got introduced to Dave Cicerelli by my mentor Sean. He's like, "Hey, I want you to meet Dave. Shake my hand. Go over and meet Roger Nelson." He says, "Hey, how you doing?" And it gives me a little quick tour of the facility while he's in the middle of organizing it through 232 way. And I've, I mean, I'm, I have 50 jumps. I was terrified. I did no clue who I'm talking to and what's going on. And I just stood there and watched the whatever it was, how dozens of airplanes, how many airplanes were in that formation? It was like 16 or 17 airplanes or something. And so the whole flight line of all the planes lined up, all running, everybody boarding all these planes. I was just completely flabbergasted, like flabbergasted, just no concept. Yeah. How did that translate? So you go... So you're, I'm, so I'm imagining you at young at your DZ in Canada, not a ton of mentorship there, but some enthusiasm around competition. Cool. You're doing some pickup four way. Cool. And then with your pals, you're going to these bigger boogie events. So, so where, and then you're having your eyes sort of widen like saucers to like, holy shit, I didn't even realize this was possible. So you're, you, the possibilities are starting to open. That's what I'm hearing. Correct me if I'm wrong. So where did that, like, how did that impact you? Right. So the worst possible way, Oh yeah, let's <laughs> yeah, hear it. you know, well, because I had 50 jumps and I was 21 and I had an ego and I didn't know anything when I was uh, at the drop zone as a beginner, but I, I was always good at whatever I put my mind to and I was very athletic. So going to Florida and having exposure and I did 40 jumps. Uh, so I did 50 jumps in my first six months of skydiving in Canada and then I did 40 jumps in my two or three week trip to, to Florida and it almost doubled my numbers and got handed a 150 zero P elliptical parachute to start flying where I had been flying Manta 288s and Fury 220s. So, Tell so us got, why that's not awesome. It's not awesome because I'm lucky to have survived it. Very lucky to have survived it. I'm just very lucky that I got away with not dying in that process. Um, but it did lead to where I am today. And so when I came back from that trip... I was full of piss and vinegar, you know? I just wanted to do everything that I had seen in that couple weeks of ridiculous exposure. So it's a good and bad, right? Like it motivated me like crazy to the potentials that could be, but at the same time, it also put me where I knew too much, but I knew too little. Got it. You know? Yeah. Total, oh my God, I have mad skills like you would not believe. Right? <laughs> nice. Oh my God. Watch yeah. for that team. Yeah, that happens to the best of us. So bad. Okay, so you... So, yeah, so... Go on, keep going. So I got I got back. It's winter time. There's not much skydiving going on in Canada, but the goals start setting in. And the next season was all about building numbers and developing experience. And I got to join it 
uh, team, one of the first teams I was on was a bunch of the guys from my local drop zone. And, you know, we did a couple of competitions together and that perpetuated. I did a couple other teams and eventually, um, I guess by like a year later or so, I had stacked up maybe 500 jumps by then. And I got invited by my mentor uh, to join him and some of the other top jumpers from our, our drop zone. And at that time, people were actually ramping up their numbers really quickly. Like he actually had like 1,500 jumps by that point. Um, and other people had a thousand. So like the jump numbers were going real quick cause they'd been going to Florida and, and building up experience. And so we were actually on a really good track to become really, you know, the leading skilled jumpers for that time. Um, so we formed a team with the goal of becoming the Canadian national four-way team. Like we really wanted to be the Canadian team and go to the world championships and represent Canada. And we made a long-term plan and we started hiring coaches and, you know, we're like three to five years. How long, what are we going to do to actually make this happen? Yeah. And you keep mentioning your mentor. I think you said his name is Sean. Yeah. Sean Lemire. Yeah. Okay. So how did Sean come into your life? I know I'm sort of <clears throat> interrupting the story a little bit, but how did Sean come into your life? And, you know, what was his impact as well. So I'm sort of curious about that, about him. Yeah, that's a really important question, actually, because I saw him flying his parachute while I was doing my workup for my static line jump. So everybody else is flying Mantas, 288 square foot, nine cell, giant F-111 parachutes and they were all the black rainbows so they had the black end cell with the rainbow scheme on them and there's lots of other big F-111 square parachutes around and Sean had a stiletto 120 in white and purple and was shredding doing front riser turns in 1994 that he had learned in Florida from watching guys like Rickster the previous year and so he was really cutting edge at the time because there was nobody else like that. There was only one other person on the drop zone who had a stiletto and he wasn't qualified to even have it. And um, when I saw Sean and how fast he was going, and at the time I was a motorcycle guy, like I had the fastest production motorcycle that you could buy. That's what I was riding when I rolled into the drop zone. I was like, I had a rocket ship. And I saw Sean shredding with this parachute and going so fast. And I'm like, look at that. There's no speed limits here. You can go as fast as you want. You can do whatever you want. And there's, and I was completely impressed. So the swooping got me right from the very before I made my first jump. Or you even made your first jump. Fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Did you, so when, did you walk up to Sean and be like, Hey, I'm new here. Were you that guy? Or were you like hanging around the hoping he would come talk to you? Like, how did you guys actually connect? So I'm really grateful because he was actually one of the guys who had had the type of experience that both you and I have also had that we also perpetuate, which is, He'd had the experience of being around excellent organizers. 
who would say, hey, you, come here. Hey, you, come here. Hey, get in here. Okay, you're here. You're here. You're doing this. And he would put groups together and, and make things happen. And, you know, my my first exposure to him was like, I went up and asked him, how do you make your parachute do that? You know, straight straight ahead. How do you make them do that? And he, he told me, you know, oh, you do a pull on the front riser, you know. And like jump number 20, I'm like, pull my front risers. Oh, my God. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And But... You know, he could immediately see that I had that type of an attitude and just immediately included me in any opportunity and we became friends. And he actually, on that trip to Florida when I came down in 1994 to Zephyr Hills, he was there working as an organizer. And I had 50 jumps, I roll into the drop zone and he was working as an organizer and there was a 20-way, no, a 10-way competition going on, right? 10-way speed stars. And the, the otter would have two 10-way teams on it. And Sean would be load organizer. And I would be the only one not on a 10-way team. And we did my, my basic free fall you know, RW training. So he walked me through how to fly right from the beginning. you know, And like, and truly, I truly had a great mentor and friend. He was only a couple of years older than me, you know? Yeah. So... But still more experienced, you know, I've been a mentor to people who are very, are so much older than me because of the experience in the sport. So that's awesome. Well, so did he and you stay in touch? Was he at your DZ? Like there's more to this story. Absolutely. And you know, what's so funny is I've always wanted to tell this story. Like as you, as you asked me this, I'm like, I have always wanted to tell this because Sean really took me under his wing. Like he we started to jump together when i had 50 jumps and when sean died now he he was the first person who i ever lost yeah he died while we were on a four-way team together so he was the he was the guy who took me under his wing and then we in the first 1500 jumps that i made i would say close to a thousand of them were with sean like there was we made a ton of jumps together wow um and so i met him in 94 and he died in 98 so i only knew him for four years and during that time went from i'm a rookie showing up on the drop zone to being teammates attempting to become national team champions yep so it was that quite a quite a, a ride from like I have no experience to like trying to be the best in our in our pool, and I really love the guy because he was a he was a beast when it came to flying, and he was always soft spoken and friendly and inclusive and had excellent leadership skills when it came to organizing and trying to lead and trying to you know make people feel included and put them in the right place and tell them what they need to know so was sean your first uh like loss of a close friend in the sport of skydiving tell us about that and how that impacted you yeah so we were in skydive's uh space center in titusville um we had moved to so i 
we'd done, done so much stuff together. It's amazing how much we'd actually done together in such a short period of time. Sean had motivated me to become a tandem instructor, um, going to trips swooping in Florida. We've done four-way training camps. Uh, we'd hired coaches. Uh, we'd been to competitions. And we had made a commitment in 97 where the five of us on the team, including the camera person, had all invested, and each of us had put 10 grand a piece into a pot and moved to Florida to Titusville. All quit our jobs, all left everything behind. We put a six month block. That's on. a big point in the story. Yeah. <laughs> oh, hashtag NBD. We just put $10,000 each into a pot and, and literally quit our jobs and move to a different part of Hell the yeah. world. Commitment. Yeah. Like this is a big, this is big. I, I love how you're like, yeah, so we just did this and it's no big deal. And, and I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Hold the phone, my friend. So, okay. Keep going. Okay. So the year before we had built the team, we had gone and done a training camp. I think we did two training camps that were like one week long training camps where we actually hired Chris Lynch to be our four-way formation coach. And we'd done a couple camps the previous year and we sat down and we had a team meeting. We said, yeah, let's do this and let's do it right and let's do it so that we actually be, we win and we become you know the best that we can be. And here's what we need to do to do it. And so we made our agreement. We put our money in, we set our schedules, we set some baseline rules, we got sponsorship in place, we got rigs, we got suits and helmets, you know, we looked the part, we looked the part, you know, and we'd done a couple of camps already, so we knew how to walk the walk, we knew how to do the dirt dives and how to do the debriefs and how to try to do the skydives and, you know, and we actually moved to Deland first uh, it was like in October of 1997 and we rolled into Deland and we ended up making like a last minute switch to Titusville as our place where we were going to train because of the fact that they offered us a place to live. They gave us a house to live in as a team. Yeah. Which was awesome because they wanted us there training, Cool, you know, and they gave us really good jump rates. And when I started training in Titusville, um, guys like Orly King was there. He had just finished winning the world championship with Omar Legalon and uh, in free fly freestyle. And um, uh, what other teams were there? Was Vivian and Rickster were sky surfing. Uh, Eric Friday was there sky surfing. Uh, Vivian Wiegrath and uh, Bob Greiner was there. Um, uh, there were formation skydiving team there too which was fx uh they were world cup champions at the time it was uh chris chris topher uh what's what's his last name topher yeah uh, um chris and don and joey jones and doug right doug park yeah and they were there and we actually hired Joey to be our full-time coach. We were both on site. That was another thing. Like they were actually training on site. So our coach was training his team and we were training right next to them side by side. Nice. We committed to a 400 jump training block over a six month period and live in full time. Every day is a training day. If you're not actually jumping, we're doing physical training and like, you know, we, we were going for it. And 
we had all left our lives behind completely and made that our only priority. There was that was the only thing happening for How everybody. Are you eating because of the ten grand. Yeah, so we had done like a split where it's like you put your pot in your money in the pot for the jumps, and then we had our money set aside for. Uh, for living off of for food yeah. okay cool <laughs> i'm like imagining oh geez and definitely it's ramen style you know yeah oh yeah yeah we were yeah we we're living skinny so when you're so this is pretty intense like the, for anybody who knows about four-way training and real commitments like that it's jay what jay's describing is no joke like this is full commitment it's hard every day at the drop zone 7 a.m yeah, your physical training, like there's a lot that goes into what you're describing, at least the way that I understand it and have experienced it in my own story. Um, at the same time, while you're training, are you also continuing your interest in canopy flight? Or is that a parallel? Like, did that happen after? Like, how did that happen? So because Jay's, yeah, go on, go on. I want to hear more about this parachute flight. So two th two things. I'm gonna say, first of all, showing up there and and finding out that I was gonna be training on the same drop zone next to Eric for day, and Eric for day was gonna be in the plane. I was like, that guy's the, he's the most badass dude I've ever heard of in my whole life. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh my god, I was a fanboy like you would not believe because I guess I was just a beast of a flyer, right? And Okay, so to the canopy side of things, Sean was my mentor, and he was a wicked swooper at the time. And Howie, Howie Murray was one of my other teammates, also a very good swooper. And our cameraman, yeah. Okay, so Howie's also canopy flight and yeah. four-way. Okay, go on. Yeah, and our camera flyer, Chris Medved, also same thing. So we were all flying uh Jedi's or Jonathan's at the time. We all had like 105 to 120 square foot parachutes and we were due formation hook turns on our four-way training jumps. And Jennifer was the light one. She was the girl on the team and she was well, like 80 pounds less than everybody else. And she also had a 95 or 96 Jedi. And so our entire team would do a five-way formation landing at the time and we would fly a like a v formation nobody does this i never see anybody do it and I, it's super cool to talk about it because sean would fly in the front and then howie and myself or chris would hang off his wings left and right and then jennifer and whoever else was trailing back so we'd have a big flying v formation and we would fly straight over top of the drop zone and then sean would snap a aggressive in place 180 degree turn and we would all match that turn inward to the middle. So the two wings turn towards each other to follow Sean's lead. And we would have that same formation on the ground, swooping that little tiny landing area in Titusville. And it was barely wide enough for the five parachutes to fit wingtip to wingtip. And that's where we would train. And, and we would do those. We did those landings every opportunity that there was. Wow. Yeah. And I, I don't want to miss Sean because we had started talking about his his loss or him passing. Tell us more. Like what happened? Why? Like what what went yeah. down? And and how did your team deal with that? So at the time we were training there, we we 
you know, we'd get up every day, 7 a.m. We'd do our warm-ups and stretches, and we'd start our day's dive flow, and we'd get into the program. We'd try and do 10 jumps a day, you know, 8 or 10 jumps a day pretty much every time. And we were having some excellent success and some horrible failure, and some of it was really challenging. And, I mean, I could openly admit that I was not an easy teammate to have. Mm. and ask any of my PD factory team teammates if I was easy to be a teammate with and they'll tell you the same thing uh, now in what way what do you mean uh, short-tempered impatient demanding failure to have perspective on other people you know just like be I could easily be a jerk yeah you know? like young unconscious oh for sure hugely oh bummer and I'm very <laughs> but not really you know very opinionated too you know um, and I always felt like the team wasn't correctly uh, uh, cast. So we had four guys on the team who were all in the same body weight range from 155 to 195 pounds and one girl who was about 90 pounds. Mm-hmm. And I always thought that Jennifer being in the team at such a disparate body weight and size made it really challenging for the group because we had one small person and three bigger people. And the challenge was that Sean and Jen were dating. They were friends. They were boyfriend, girlfriend. And Jen was Joe's daughter, the drop zone owner's daughter. And Joe was like the steps, uh, you know, the son-in-law. And so there was a really important relationship going on there for both for love and for what's going on with jumping. And I thought Jennifer would be better suited to be the camera flyer on our team. And that Chris, who was about the same body weight and somebody who was eagerly assertive and male and aggressive would be better suited to being the other flyer in the group. Um, Jennifer often got whipped around smashed on didn't I felt like she couldn't hold her place in the team and I vocalized that and that caused some ripples uh yeah so you know and do I yeah it is what it is you know I made that yeah well teams are not without conflict I mean that's why we say hey hire a coach when you're hiring a team the majority of what breaks teams up are team dynamic issues like that if you don't have some Uh, sort of uh, authority leadership that is hierarchically clearly different than your team members. And we did. We had hired a full-time professional coach. Joey Jones was our coach, and he was there training alongside us. And one day Joey came to me and sat me down and said, Jay, I got to talk to you. Uh, The team has decided that they want you to leave the team. (gasps) Whoa. Holy crap. Yeah. And say more. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I guess I was frustrated at the time because we were not, our performances at times were excellent, like world record level performance. And then other times it would be unable to maintain control of flight and body flight, you know, like some, the, the, the way that things were coming apart, I was just like, slapping myself in the face going come on we shouldn't be going from this good to this bad you know that the range is the 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 range is too big and so 
Joey told me that the team had met and, you know, because, you know, it wasn't, I was unhappy and I guess I was, that was showing my juvenile behavior was coming to the surface. And so he said, you know, teams decided they want you to leave. And so I'm like, what the fuck? What am I going to do with it? What do you mean? What am I going to do with my life? Like, I'm all in here, you know, like I quit my job. I moved to another country. I got nothing. And we were getting near the end of the training period. We'd already been in for like five months. And so suddenly I'm on my own. Conveniently, my girlfriend at the time decided that was a good time to take off. Oh, my God. Go blitz out, you know. Oh, this is like one of your major troughs in the sport. Jeez, you're like, I'm like just realizing it. Okay, gosh, keep going. So you, your girlfriend breaks up with you. No, she just started sleeping with another dude. Didn't really break up with me. Whatever, awful, not into it. So, (laughs) so you're this heartbroken, sort of angry. Heartbroken, totally heartbroken. My goal, my fantasy, my life dream, and like going to go be a champion athlete. I'm now like, is gone. Gone. Now I'm in Titusville, Florida, which is a dump. If you've ever been to Titusville, it's a horrible place to live. No offense to anybody who lives in Titusville, but I would not move to Titusville. You know, it's like repressed economy and there's nothing there and so i just put my shit in the van that i had that little red plymouth voyager minivan uh, ruby was her name and i drove over to land and went to get to look at getting a tail pocket put on my um seven cell parachute that i had i heard there was a base jumping rigging shop in DeLand and one of my friends Mike McKinley Mike X he had come down to Florida and we were visiting and so he was like hey I'm gonna go over there and go on like I'm going with you and we went to DeLand and I was gonna get a tail pocket put on this parachute because I knew I was gonna go to Bridge Day again that year and I'd already been to Bridge Day a couple times to base jump and I knew that my parachutes for base jumping weren't set up as good as they could be. If I got a tail pocket, it would be better for base jumping. You were already base jumping? Yeah, I'd already base jumped a few times. I've been to Bridge Day a couple of times. Okay. And um, so I went over to this shop, and they were just going to install the tail pocket while I was there. Like, we're just going to hang out for an hour. He's going to put it on. And I was looking around the shop, and I was talking, and I met Mario Richard. He was the one working at the shop at the time. And while we were chatting, he talked about this guy who had been there and done a rigor apprenticeship. And I literally just asked on the spot, could I do that? Like, because I'm like, I'm, I have nothing now. I'm like, could I become a rigger? Can I learn how to do that? Can he, had, can I learn how to base jump? Because he had said he'd learned how to become a rigger, but he'd also apprenticed as a base jumper. And so now base jumping was always like i'd already been doing that. i loved that that was amazing but there was that was even less knowledge about that than about canopy flight you know and while i got this opportunity mario came back a couple days later and called me up and said yeah yeah Mar- Mar- marta says you could have the job you can work and you can you know learn to become a rigger and we'll teach you how to base jump and so i moved over to deland and meanwhile the four-way team started looking for a replacement for me so they were looking for tryouts they had a few different people come in and try to fly my slot and see how well they work with the team dynamics and 
man, I bet that I hadn't been in Deland for more than a week or two before I got the call that Sean had hooked himself in oh. during some of these train uh, tryout training jumps. Oh wow! Yeah. Wow, what a time period! Right. So yeah, just bam, bam, bam. You know, like falling apart. Right. How did that feel having that happen with him when you guys clearly were in sort of a dissenting period? Like, obviously, oh. I'm, I'm imagining that you were angry at each other, that there, you were sort of your friendship was was sort of not severed necessarily, but you'd tell us. But like, I'm imagining this, like, I'm pissed at this dude who meant so much to me. We had we hadn't even spoken. You know, yeah. and I can guarantee you that he was angry. Yeah, he was angry because all the work and all the effort and everything was like it wasn't working out the way we had dreamed and planned. And he was flying angry. I had seen him flying, you know, and I could tell that he was pissed because he was just super reckless and super aggressive. Oh goodness! And so I'm sure that it was a combination of that state of being, of being frustrated and angry that led to doing a maneuver that was too low or too aggressive in a turbulent or whatever, whatever the, the things add up, the stack up. Yeah. Know? Emotionally, just not being as clear, not being on point, not totally. being as point. Oh God, that is a huge lesson for anyone listening who engages in skydiving or extreme sports or just, any decision making when we are in that really angry and prolonged state it it can be it can behoove us to really breathe and pause and slow our decision making to try to get to some clear mindedness oh wow that's that's intense yeah it was a really really like oh my gosh i mean i i had not lost anybody in the sport and the first person I lost was my mentor. And we were at a, I wouldn't say we were at a falling out, you know, because him and I had never exchanged a negative word. Like there was never a point where either one of us had said anything to each other that was disappointment or anger or frustration. You know, it had, the, you know the the message for what was going on had come through the coach and that was more related to the team it wasn't personal between Sean and I and I think he had the same opinion I did about what should happen within the team as far as the restructure and that's my personal opinion you know I think he he thought yeah I think he thought the same thing and he was frustrated about the way that that things continued to go um because they restructured and it didn't fix it you know yeah, and it's hard to make choices as young people. I mean, any person yeah. on your team is in a tough spot, you know, not just you, you know, being the vocal sort of aggro young dude, but also I'm sure everybody had their own challenge and emotional struggle Absolutely. with that. You know, that's a very common experience in, in those team environments. Um, given we're getting close to the end of our sesh, I... I'm happy to hear that even in this like horrible breakdown of your your sort of next turning point, but I feel like that's such a wonderful place to end. Exactly. It's yeah. like that you are in this sort of 
real turning point in your skydiving career. And you've just gotten this opportunity and we barely even, we didn't even talk about base jumping, but like the fact that you've already been base jumping and that's something that you really love. And that's sort of a separate parallel thread to your life experience in skydiving is what it sounds like that you have an, a new opportunity to sort of put your, your attention and love into, is that what it was like? Or was it more like, I just don't know what the fuck I'm doing. And well, you know what? I'm like, I'm sure, I'm sure that our next, um, our next discussion will dive into this in more detail, but I can say in a quick summary that what happens when you're a young man and all your life plans completely disintegrate and your mentor dies and you don't have any money or job and all you have is possibly throwing yourself off antennas and cliffs and buildings that that's where things went that there was only one way to let out all the fear and all the anger and all the who knows what the hell is going on right now what is this crazy thing that is called life and fuck it and huck it yeah, so you went and base jumped a ton. Yeah. Wow. Gosh, so it's it's almost like a cliffhanger, which is we have to. It's like these episodes have to be sort of cliffhanger-ish because the next I'm like now I'm going, well, how how does and I know you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, how does Jay make good? Like, how does he go from his breakdown into his, you know, rise and Oh, it gets worse. It gets, it gets worse. Oh, <laughs> it gets worse. Trust me. Well, the what I think is that I actually kind of love that we're ending on that note yeah. because that's 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 how it goes. You know, it's not like everything is always tied up in a little pretty bow. But oh my goodness, if you had to. Is there anything that we you haven't shared that you really want to make sure we share about these early years? Because I'm sure there's tons more, but I don't want to cut it off before giving you an opportunity to share. So that and a second part of the question of what is one of or like the one of the one or two of the biggest insights that you got from that period of your life? You know, there's so many stories. There's so many rabbit holes that just go everywhere in those early years there's tons of stuff that happened back then that really makes us has made me who i am today you know as all of us um but i don't think that i need to like go down any one specific one i think we really hit the nail on the head with regards to like what there there's there's more there's more there i won't We'll pick it up on the next round. Yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. And uh, insight-wise, though, what would what would be something you would say? This is what I would take as a listener from this part of my journey. Oh, you know the best laid plans. <laughs> that that recurring theme in life is just incredible. How doesn't matter how well we lay out our plans we just don't know what we don't know coronavirus is a great example of that who you know and yeah. uh i love that quote life is what happens when we're busy making other plans absolutely 
How did I end up here? <laughs> so true. What the? Well, my friend, I love it. Thank you for your sharing. Thank you for your vulnerability. Thank you for just being an open book for us to be able to witness your human experience, your life experience, and take what we can for ourselves and make our own lives better as a result of that sharing. So I acknowledge that. I appreciate that. I appreciate you, family. If you are listening, again, just to bring it back to the Trust the Journey family, please join us in the Trust the Journey family if you want. We welcome this kind of sharing in there as well. And it really is a place to be seen, to be heard, and to be supported. So join us now if you want. The website is trustthejourney.today or hit us up for uh, 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 like a DM on Instagram. The handle there is also trustthejourney.today. And don't forget, you know, sharing is caring. Hit the share button. Send this episode. Send our channel our show to anybody you think might enjoy listening to this especially you know we're starting into this new reflection series we'd love to have some new people join us uh hit the like button hit reviews you know on itunes uh, anywhere that you listen to podcasts subscribe you know uh, help us get our voice out there and um and do what we do the huge keep laughing keep loving and keep trusting the journey love you (laughs) 